You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Holden Caulfield, Nick Carraway, Xerox Corporation. All of these are fictitious persons, but only one of them can go to court. Jonathan McGaha tweets, and by the way, you can tweet me, at my hist. In reference to the 14th Amendment cast, love the new episode, lots of content, was surprised by the absence of any mention of the artificial person debate over the 14th. Thanks, Jonathan. Big cast. Even in the big ones, you can't hit everything, uh, because I also didn't talk about the 14th and abortion. In the Slaughter Could Not Be Ignored cast, we tried to talk about the 14th, its evolution, and not so much the cases that then used the 14th, that springed out of it, although we did a little of that. The 14th gives rights to citizens of the United States. All persons born or naturalized are citizens of the United States. Their privileges and immunities cannot be taken away without due process. They deserve equal protection under the law. And so, in many cases, corporations, who are indeed persons, come before the court and ask for all those rights in the 14th. What occurred as a result of those court cases is perhaps a bit misunderstood. No one was thinking, certainly, about corporations when they created the amendments known as the Bill of Rights. And I see no thought of corporations when the 14th was constructed. But, like so many things in law... As society changes, as issues arrive with the writ law and how it should be interpreted, the courts need to decipher how the law fits the reality. And in early America, while there were a few corporations, there weren't as many as needed for commerce of the country to grow. But in an early case in 1809, when the Bank of the United States pursued a citizen for payment, the defendant argued... Why are we here in court with a person who's not real, the Bank of the United States? They're a corporation. Only citizens of the United States can sue us in federal court. No rule, Justice Marshall. Citizen in context in the court means corporation as well, if one party in the suit is a named corporation. In 1819, the court awarded certain rights to Dartmouth College's incorporated board. New Hampshire, the legislature there, had wished to throw out the board, but the board as a corporation lived and therefore had rights as a board. So it's before the 14th that you have an establishment that a corporation doesn't, by virtue of not being a real-in-the-flesh person, lose all their rights in court. When California decided to tax railroads differently than retail businesses and other corporations and not allow them to deduct mortgages from their property tax, the court decided that the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause and the 14th, and then in a later case, in the 14th Amendment Due Process Clause, applied to corporations. Here, California was seeking to treat some corporations one way, the railroads, 
and other corporations, the banks and stores, etc., differently. Why is that? Well, according to Justice Stephen Field, a corporation is nothing more than a group of individuals. Even with complex stock ownership, there's always citizens in the corporation, and you deprive those citizens of rights if you deny the corporation rights. Citizens don't lose their rights, in a sense, when they associate with a corporation. They have freedom of association. That's the form they're choosing to do business in, and a court system has to treat that corporation as a group of citizens with rights. An oft-cited example uh, is that if you allow corporations to lose their right of free speech, the government could shut down the New York Times. New York State might say, for instance, well, if Bill Keller wants to speak, fine as the editor, well, former editor now, of the New York Times, he can speak as a citizen. But if the New York Times speaks, we can shut it down. New York State can shut it down. We can pass a law bridging the right of free speech to corporations. You know, if you don't give a corporation the right to the first and then the 14th, so it allows the federal right to go into the state level, New York State could shut down the New York Times and say, well, all of your editors can speak alone, all of your writers can speak alone, but not as a corporated newspaper. How are they going to pay the printing bill? This is the challenge. Now, the argument could be, this would never happen. And anyway, we'll just pass a law to protect newspapers. Well, then you're relying on statute law, which could be changed in some future time. And then you're relying on the goodwill of a state legislature not to abridge the speaking rights of a newspaper corporation in the future. Maybe it wouldn't happen in modern times, but who knows? There was an example in the 19th century where the state of Louisiana instituted a 2% income tax just on newspapers, no other corporation. And it was meant to be punitive. So that's the example almost cited on the other side of why there has to be some constitutional right for corporations. That's the theory. But in National Bank v. Bellotti and in Citizens United, the recent case, the court got very protective of that corporate First Amendment speaking rights. Massachusetts and Bellotti couldn't ban corporations from engaging in politics. And the FEC and Citizens United could not ban corporations from using their treasury to support a political candidate. Here's where I think, though, most people misunderstand the court's sparse but powerful rulings in this area of corporate personhood. You hear so much about the corporations being a person. The court, be it Marshall, be it Stephen Field, be it Antonin Scalia, has never ruled that a corporation is a person with all rights. For instance, Stephen Field was specific that businesses only have rights when it applies to the business actions, or more specifically, actions of the government for which they as corporate owners could be impacted. Rights, according to Field's rationale, must be coextensive just as far-reaching, whether the person is alone or in a corporation. Would they still possess that right if they were an individual? Otherwise, you're punishing them for developing the corporate form for their business. That was the field rationale. Another point, the court specifically said that the part in the 14th about privileges and immunities, we talked about this, all of the rights that a citizens have, is not enjoyed by fictitious persons, corporations. So, Yes, equal protection. Yes, due process. Yes, the First Amendment in a lot of cases. And there have been cases even about the Fifth that a corporation couldn't be forced to testify against itself, that they had the equal right, whether they're a fictitious person or a real person. 
but not all of those rights. So where are we now? It's a contentious issue. So I'm going to make three points. One is that I think the 14th is very powerful as an amendment. One of the reasons we went through the history is the reason that such a powerful lever needed to be given to the federal government in order to go in and change the bad behavior of certain states, the southern states, during the Reconstruction. And it gave the balance of power to the individual citizen over the state government. So we should understand why, when the slaughter in New Orleans could not be ignored, the stench, the smell, the horrible butchery operation that the state wanted to regulate, the court decided not to use that powerful 14th to protect individuals and stop Louisiana's government from taking actions against the butcheries. Essentially, that slaughterhouse court said it's powerful, so we got to be careful about using it. This is one more example. I think once you unleash something like the 14th, there's a lot of different uses for it then. And, and since a 14th exists, you have one more player in the story, corporations seeking protection from it. Secondly, I think the issue should be seen in the kind of toned-down analysis that I've tried to show here. It's not a secret conspiracy. Corporate constitutional rights are not all-powerful. It's a mission creep of law. It's been enlarged by some pro-business courts, and it's been lowered in other times. You can debate about the level of protections. I think that's where the debate should occur. How much protection do you award corporations? But essentially, you always have this tension in the law. How come Alex, Bill, and Charlene have rights, but when they form ABC Corporation and are discriminated against, they lose them? They're forced back to be Alex, Bill, and Charlene instead of ABC Corporation, and they have to choose between discrimination or losing the benefits of corporate activity. Now, are we going to cry for large corporations? I think a third point to make. Corporations are a fact of life in American society. You can't go back into history. You'd have to unravel everything that was ever produced by a corporation, right, to get rid of them all. And I think the progress of the country has obviously been aided in perhaps a silent way by the ability to incorporate in most states in early America on forward. It's a fact of life. What is a fact of life, what is a part of society, is also a part of policy and must be. If you limit corporate speech, and I know it's tempting to do so because we're all thinking about giant corporations dumping loads of money in ending discussion. If you limit corporate speech, you have to consider this. Are you taking away from the discourse an important player with something to say? A message you may not want to hear, but an important player in life, in society. No, I know, you're not going to cry for Exxon. But are we to say only environmental activists get to speak? Only people who are anti-oil get to speak? And that's when I think when I hear about the corporations very often. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. 
I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. But nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. ...from the leftward side of our politics, in the desire to limit corruption, in the desire to prevent all law from being written by lobbyists, you also can't go into the reverse mode, I believe, and eliminate a player in life from being a player in policy. Most of us work for corporations. Many of us own a part of a corporation. It is because of a corporation that I'm able to speak to you now. Not that they're funding the program, but the device and the technologies you use are all by incorporated businesses and not a bunch of individuals. So I think to wish them away is, 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 a, is a wish that's not going to happen. How do you limit corporate speakers from taking over all the speech? Those are the questions that, that have to be asked. Let's see, a question from Adolf Vega on the My Hairstreet Could Beat Up Your Politics Facebook site. Hey, Bruce, I just listened to the What If No Roosevelt podcast. This is from a while back. And you forgot to mention President Taft and Wilson. Uh, this was a podcast where I went through how life would have been different in American politics with no Teddy Roosevelt and what might have happened. You forgot to mention President Taft and Wilson and that their fate was connected directly to Teddy. Wilson was probably as liberal as FDR and pushed hard for the League of Nations. Wilson also helped to make the Federal Reserve, the Adamson Act that gave us an eight-hour workday, overtime, and expanded antitrust regulations that Teddy started. Taft pushed for an income tax amendment, which totally changed America. You forgot to mention any of this. I like to think Teddy would have get his own term eventually, as progressive politics would have been delayed, but would still break through in America during the 20th century. Thanks, Adolf. Hmm, very interesting. It's what-ifs. What-ifs get dangerous. That's why we tried to keep the scope narrow. I would say a world without Teddy Roosevelt, which was the subject of that podcast a few ago, would have been different in a way that those other two presidents, Taft and Wilson, cannot match. I know they're significant presidents. All presidents to some degree are significant particularly Wilson. I know they have individual qualities that make them interesting, but I still would argue the change wrought by Teddy Roosevelt being president just made the world a different place. I do what if I like to stay with the narrowest version and what is absolutely true, that it just simply would not have happened. Without a Theodore Roosevelt, no Franklin Roosevelt. He used the family name as a way to get ahead in his politics. He might have been a minor official in New York, but no Franklin Roosevelt. The idea of a vice president running for a term when he got the office through a death of a president. They didn't allow the Veeps to run for that second term or get that second term in the 19th century. Theodore Roosevelt was first. He set a precedent. Now it's almost assumed. Those are the easier speculations to make. But if you start taking every branch of a what if 
it gets immensely complicated because we don't know what would happen in all those branches. So no Theodore Roosevelt, you say, no President Taft, no Wilson, and we have to discuss it. That's correct, I think, but I differ on the impact. Definitely with Taft. Taft was the Theodore Roosevelt creation. Theodore Roosevelt's friend kind of tamed the Philippines with a civilian government. That was the foreign policy crisis of the day. You could imagine if someone from the Obama administration just went in now and completely, completely calmed everything down in Afghanistan. That person would be a great candidate for president. And that's kind of what happened with Taft. He really looked capable. Didn't turn out that way as president, but he looked capable. He was Theodore Roosevelt's secretary of war and then made president through Theodore Roosevelt's efforts. But as far as President Taft's impact on the questions you cite, for instance, the election of senators and the income tax, I think it was limited. They earned his support, his endorsement. They weren't ideas that his championship produced. There were lots of pushing for those issues from progressives and from low-tariff supporters who wanted an income tax to counteract, because if you're going to lower the tariff... All right. You're going to still have a need of money to run the federal government. So you need an income tax to shore that up. So there are a lot of people supporting that income tax, not just Taft. Wilson gets a little harder, but he arrived in the presidency as the result of a split of the Republican Party. And thus, the simple case is there's no Theodore Roosevelt. We have no Taft. And so you have no Wilson. Now, the president of Princeton, which would have been a far more visible position than it is now, a northern college popular with Southerners, home to some of the nation's sports, a Democrat who can win Virginia and New Jersey. His name was urged as early as 1908. He was seen as something as a Democratic TR, progressive who was not a radical Western progressive and could appeal to Southerners too. So yes, he was a possibility, but he was probably an unlikely president In 1912, he barely got the nomination. And so without that split of the Republican Party, possible president, but barely got the nomination even in 1912. So I think you can make that case that absent the split in the Republican Party, no Wilson. So the argument would be that no Wilson, no tariff, no Federal Reserve, World War I goes differently, no League of Nations, etc. Let's look at the realistic situation. No Theodore Roosevelt. That leaves conservatives in control of the Republican Party, I believe, and the Republican nominating process. You don't have this sudden, progressive-minded person who's been catapulted into the most important office in the land. He wouldn't get there. And without that divine intervention placing a bull moose Spanish-American war veteran into a powerful office, I believe he received someone into the background as a VP for one term, That's Teddy Roosevelt. We discussed that already. The Republicans had controlled the nation since the Reconstruction with just two interruptions from Grover Cleveland's two single non-consecutive terms. The Democrats held the presidency six years out of 60. At some point in history, that had to break. Now, the simple way to look at it is to say, yes, it broke in 1912 because It took a split of the Republican Party to do it. They were so powerful. So without Theodore Roosevelt to split the party, no Democrat gets to the presidency, not Wilson or anyone else. I think that would be thinking too little about the situation. I think that Theodore Roosevelt's presidency, his activism, his borrowed progressivism, gave the GOP party eight extra years that they may not have had. 
I would look at the 1904 or the 1908 elections and say there are possible wins for a Democratic candidate. Maybe William Jennings Bryan. He was a strong candidate and against a pure conservative. Without that ability that Teddy Roosevelt had to take some of the progressive ideas away, Bryan may have won. Those forces were looking for a place to put their votes. So by 1912, I just don't see the GOP party continuing another election win without Theodore Roosevelt on the ticket. So I think it's highly possible that either William Jennings Bryan or by the time you get to 1912, say Champ Clark, the Speaker of the House, backed by Bryan, becomes president. Since his name was being brought up, there's even the possibility Wilson's there. Either way, a low-tariff scheme is enacted. And almost any Democrat in those years, you didn't have to be Wilson, was supporting lower tariffs. Grover Cleveland had supported as president. So that new Democratic president, whoever they are, are going to go for tariff reform. Once you go for tariff reform, you're going to need an income tax amendment with that. Assuming Congress can pass both of those, you have those two without Taft or without Wilson. Woodrow Wilson is a fascinating president to read about and, of course, made a difference. But I think that in that Theodore Roosevelt cast, we aren't talking about simply making a difference. Every president makes a little difference. We're talking about dominating the political scene. So I'm less enamored in a world without Wilson. I think some progressive movement goes on, still in the teens without him, it would be unleashed, Follett pushing it and others. Absent a Woodrow Wilson presidency, some incremental steps will, I believe, have moved on. The eight-hour week, by the way, was not Wilson's either genius idea. It was a 1916 campaign pledge to back the eight-hour day for railroad workers. And any Democrat that year may have felt the same tug of a strengthened labor. So let's say Bill Bryan wins in 12. Let's say it's Champ Clark. Uh, they're still going to need to get reelected. That election's going to be tough, and labor's going to be one of the areas of support they seek out. Now, I mean, there's harder things there. The League of Nations certainly was a Wilsonian idea, so I, I must grant that. You don't know what another president would have done in that situation. I assume that World War I intervention was a given with any president that someone like Wilson or uh, Bryan or Champ Clark might have been forced into it because the submarine attacks on our shipping. See, you've got to look at it in today's term. What if China and India got into a war? And they stopped FedEx from going around the world, DHL from going around the world with American packages. I mean, that's essentially what happened. You know, our commerce was being shut down by Germany and to a lesser degree, and less publicized degree, Britain. So I think World War I intervention was going to happen. Wilson held out as long as he could. I think any Democrat would have done that, whereas Republican president would have been more likely to, to rush in just the way the politics were going at that time. Someone like a William Schoening Bryan may have been the least likely to intervene, but I do think that the politics were there that even his hand may have been forced. That League of Nations was a Wilson idea, might not have happened with another president. You might have still had something like a United Nations after the devastating war of World War II. Didn't have that League of Nations to build on, I grant you that. I think any number of presidents would have done the income tax and tariff reform. It was small and seen as a necessary step at the time. So I elevate a world without Teddy Roosevelt, which would have been radically different for American politics, versus a world without Wilson. But who knows? I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Twitter is at myhist. 
And if you do like the program, please tell someone about it. Thanks for listening. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow.